Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from our state-of-the-art facility here in my garage in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the uh, – we've got a great turnout today, folks. Thousands listening live right now, uh, or the tens of thousands who will eventually uh, be listening to this recording. Here's how Office Hours works. On each program, we open the phone lines for almost an hour, and I, accompanied by a special guest, about whom more in a moment, will take your questions, questions about work, business, life, management, education, anything you want. If you have questions, we'll try to offer some answers. We like to think of this, maybe no one else thinks of it this way, but we like to think of it as car talk, but for the human engine. And today we've got a guest who's not just good, he's great. It's Jim Collins, author of the legendary book, Good to Great. Now, I don't throw around adjectives like legendary very lightly, but this book fits that description. It has been on the bestseller list for 10 years, 10 years, uh, except for books like the Bible and what to expect when you're expecting, that's unprecedented. Although, come to think of it, Good to Great has something in common with both of those books. Um, but there are other markers of influence besides sales. Good to Great has reshaped the very vocabulary of business and management. And, and, and seriously, I mean, this is my own experience. I travel around, I interview business leaders, and you know what I hear? I hear sentences like this. I want to be a level five leader. We need to get the right people on the bus. In my department, we're trying to push the flywheel. We're working on some big, hairy, audacious goals. All those come from good to great. Um, and I also recommend good to great in, for the social sectors, which is a, a shorter piece that, that Jim did that offers – I know we have a lot of listeners from nonprofits and government. It's a really, really smart analysis of why being more like a business is not the recipe for nonprofits. But now – um, just a couple weeks ago, Jim and his co-author, uh, Morton Hansen, are back with a new book. Uh, it's called Great by Choice, Uncertainty, Chaos, and Luck, and Why Some Thrive Despite Them All. It's a really smart, really, really well-researched, and this is something I want to get to when I talk to Jim, a very counterintuitive book. So, Jim Collins, uh, welcome to Office Hours. It is just wonderful to be here with you, Dan. I am very much looking forward to our conversation. Terrific. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in New York City. New York City. And are you are you you're working on promoting this new book, or are you advising companies, or are you there's no I know you're a, a, a climber, so there's not well there's lots of climbing in New York City. It's just it's just no, illegal. No, uh, although I have been spending a little bit of time uh, watching the uh, the progress of a of a friend of mine who's currently climbing on El Capitan, who's uh, uh, twittering and facebooking his progress, uh, and so in a sense I'm connected back to the climbing. Uh, no, I'm in New York. I, I was here for a, a teaching session uh, yesterday, and I'm I'm having a couple of interviews today, uh, and then enjoying a beautiful fall day in New York. And of course, there's always right. great artwork here. Uh, uh, yes, there is. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend a, few, uh, a little bit of time talking about the new book. Then we'll open up the lines and we'll play office hours. Now, folks, all of you, right, all of you listening, um, if you want to ask a question, remember, just press star two. If you want to ask a question, just press star two. Now, if you're listening on iTunes, please don't press star two. This has already happened. Uh, press star two, and that will allow our crack team of producers to see you on the control panel. I will say your name. Fred, in St. Louis, you're on the air, that's an example, and you can ask away. Uh, and what's interesting is that in the last few shows, people organically have begun asking questions via Twitter. That's fine, too. Uh, just include 
uh, at Daniel Pink, so we'll be able to see it. We don't have a separate hashtag, uh, although it looks like now people are proposing that. We're just using at Daniel Pink as the hashtag. Um, so, Jim, we're, um, we're all ready to go. Um, everybody has read, I imagine a huge portion of people on this call have read Good to Great. How is this book different? Well, this book began in 2002 uh, with my co-author, Morton Hansen, uh, who you mentioned in the beginning there. And, and we were really struck by the changing world around us. And the way that this book is fundamentally different is that unlike the other works that selected the study cases based on a historical era of performance, this selects on a historical era of performance plus the severity, instability, uncertainty, chaotic nature of the environment in which they're operating. Um, and, and so, and give us a sense of the time period here, because you make a really uh, powerful, I thought really compelling analogy to sports dynasties, dynasties and the way that you, you, you study this. So tell us about the time period and, and how you selected these companies, because yeah, this, book is all about, this, this book is all about what you call 10Xers. Yeah, tell us about yeah. what those are, why they matter. Well, you know, when we when we study uh, uh, our, our study cases, we're really not studying companies as they are today. Uh, we study historical dynastic eras, uh, and so we went back in this study and uh, picked companies that went from startup or from small businesses into companies that beat their industries by a minimum of ten times through 2002, and we say that's like a great sports dynasty. That's like the 49ers in the 80s. That's like John Wooden in his basketball dynasty. Uh, it, 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 and, and that whatever the company is doing today is really not relevant to the analysis because we're studying it when it was a truly great dynasty. All of ours basically began in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and we had our cutoff in 2002. And I think what's interesting here is not only is that there is a um, uh, there's a, there, there are two kinds, at least as I read it, two kinds of comparisons. One is that they were 10x, you know, they, they obviously uh, outperformed the market, but you also in each case select a comparative company. Yep. Uh, tell, us, tell us about that. Um, and, and actually use the example, I mean use any example you want. I was really, I learned a lot from the example that you have of, of Southwest Airlines and its counterpart. Oh, yes. Well, well. so first of all, uh, my, one of my mentors, Jerry Porras, uh, who was my co-author on Built to Last all the way back in the late 80s and early 90s that we did together, was a great research methodologist. And when we first began our research for Built to Last, we were looking at what makes a, an enduring great company that can rise to iconic or visionary status. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that, that Jerry said was it's very dangerous to just study, study success because what, mm. if what you see – is that all the successful people wear red socks. Does that mean, therefore, that right. wearing red, red socks makes the successful uh, athletes? Uh, and, and Jerry said what we have to do is we have to have comparisons. So our whole methodology, which Jerry Porras really gets the credit for, is to go back in time and find two enterprises that were in the same spot, same opportunity, same resources, same potential, same environment, same – uh, conditions, if you will, circumstances, and yet one went one direction in terms of results and the other did not. And then you ask not what do the great ones have in common, but what is different? What was different between the great ones and the others? So in the case of uh, uh, Pacific Southwest Airlines and Southwest Airlines, this, is a, this for Morton uh, and for myself was just one of the really great and delightful lines. Yeah, now remind us about the, remind us of the comparative company because I think a lot of people might not yeah, have heard this is, of. 
Well, this Southwest. is really fun because uh, we we didn't know the story. I mean, we always are doing our analysis to discover the story. And uh, there was one view, which is, you know, Southwest Airlines was successful because it was a pioneering innovator and it brought this whole new model to the world, and, and then it was just better than everything else. And lo and behold, when you rewind the tape of history to find the very best comparison company for Southwest Airlines, it turns out that in the late 1960s, uh, Southwest Airlines had a business plan was four words, copy PSA in Texas. <laughs> PSA stands for Pacific Southwest Airlines. And, uh, and this was a, anybody who flew in California in, in, say, the 70s and 80s may remember these uh, uh, PSA jets that had smiley faces underneath the, uh, the cockpit windows, and they looked like giant smile faces in the sky. That company invented the model that Southwest won with. Southwest went there, copied the operating ma- manuals, uh, flew around. Literally, the literally, it stopped there, literally stopped there copied them. Literally, yeah, literally. Just, tell, that, yeah. tell that story because I was, I was, um, I was drawing. Uh, I actually read this book as an as an ebook, but I was drawing yeah. notes of exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation yeah. point. They went and when you say copied. Literally copied their operating. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and it was pre-deregulation. So what you had is uh, uh, the the folks at PSA welcomed them in and shared everything with them, and because it was the one was going to be in Texas, the other was going to be in California. They weren't going to be direct competitors. They were friendly, and they they just shared all the inner details of how the whole thing worked. Southwest went back. The, one of the former uh, founders of Southwest described it as a cut and paste procedure, and they created their own operating manuals from there, and then launched this airline, and. Uh, and so we, uh, Morton and I, always jokingly said it wasn't just a copy; it was a photocopy of the business model. And uh, and then they went from there to to uh, to grow. Now here's the really fascinating thing, though: PSA and Southwest Airlines had the exact same business model at the exact same time, with the same potential to become great companies from there. And so clearly, it wasn't just that Southwest had a better model and won; they had the same model and they copied it, and they were second, and they didn't invent it. And yet they were the ones that won. And that struck us as very, very interesting. And when you say they won, and this is really key to what you're talking about, it's not like they won by um, uh, a little. Uh, pushing their, 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 their chest across the finishing tape a little bit ahead of time. They won. They laughed them. Oh, this, this, so this, this is really an astounding uh, number. So Southwest Airlines, if you, uh, Money Magazine ran this uh, very interesting analysis where they went back and they said, let's go back to 1972 and, and over this 30-year period to 2002, figure out who was the number one best-performing stock of all publicly traded stocks in the universe of publicly traded stocks on, on U.S. stock exchanges. And they went back and they looked, and uh, they were astounded to discover that the winner wasn't Walmart and it wasn't Intel and it wasn't Berkshire Hathaway and it wasn't wasn't GE and it wasn't Disney. The number one best performing stock was Southwest Airlines over that 30-year period. As an airline, Southwest beat the general stock market by 63 times and beat its industry by over 500 times. So we, you know, to me, it is the almost poster case for the idea that your industry doesn't determine your success, your circumstances right. doesn't, don't determine your success, you determine. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a great story. Let's come back. You're listening to Office Hours. Our guest uh, this episode is Jim Collins. Um, you can ask Jim any question you want, or almost any question you want, uh, simply if you're listening live by hitting star two. That's star two on your phone. That will let us see you raising your hand. So hit star two to raise your hand to ask a question. Uh, we have some questions coming in on Twitter. Just use my Twitter handle, at Daniel Pink. 
Now, but uh, before we get to your question, the, your listener questions, uh, we, it's my show, so I get to go first. So let's um, let's talk about this because I think Southwest again, you have a lot of interesting examples, and I thought that the biotech example was mm. was quite stunning in in itself too. One of the things that comes out here, let me just read a paragraph here because it's really counterintuitive. I mean, it's the kind of paragraph that you you underline, you draw an exclamation point by, and here's what here's how you describe you and Morton uh, Hansen, your co-author, describe these ten Xers, these companies like Southwest that just dramatically outperformed their competitors. You say they're not more creative, they're not more visionary, they're not more charismatic, they're not more ambitious, they're not led by luck, they're not more risk-seeking, they're not more heroic, and they're not prone to making big, bold moves. So let's just unpack this for a second. You say that these 10Xers are not the most innovative ones, and in some cases, they're less innovative than their competitors. Okay. I mean, what's going on, Jim? <laughs> well, first come on, of all, I mean, come on. Listen, listen, I read business books and I write business books, and we all know that innovation matters and you, the most innovative person, the most innovative thing wins. And here you yep. are saying, I mean, again, unequivocally, um, they're, it's not the most innovative. The 10Xers were not the most innovative company. In some cases, yep. they were less innovative than the people they left in their dust, the, the, the yep. organizations they left in their dust. Well, uh, so so first, I want to be really clear at the start of this part of the conversation that uh, Morton and I are not saying that innovation is bad and that or that people should not innovate. Um, and so uh, that's very important to to get right yeah, out. Sure. Innovation remains important. However, innovation as sort of the supreme trump card that uh, will sort of erase all other sins. Well, that that is a whole separate question. We did not find support for that. So here's here's what kind of I want to uh, share on this innovation piece. Let me just sort of tell a little bit of the story of how this how this came about. So uh, we we described a moment ago the Southwest and PSA story, and uh, and you know we had thought, well, gosh, you know, Southwest was probably the pioneering innovator of this great model until we discovered they copied it. Well, they didn't innovate innovate hardly any of it, and we thought, well, that's interesting. But then we thought. Yeah, but that's airlines. It's not an industry where innovation is really what's going to uh, to play the role. So then we get uh, – we kind of move along through our research, and we hit two other companies that really struck us as interesting on this. Uh, the first was this biotech pair, and I got this uh, – uh, this chart from from Morton that that showed patent productivity, where our 10x case, which is Amgen, uh, had mm-hmm. less patent productivity by a substantial delta, both in terms of citations and in terms of number of patents, uh, than the comparison case, which was Genentech, which and Genentech did not perform as well financially over the dynastic period that we studied. And so here we have an industry where the correlation between <laughs> innovation and results should be almost one for one, and yet the company that was the 10x winner was not as innovative as the comparison. And so we looked at that and we said, what does that mean? What it means, and, and by the way, what's very interesting, I just want to emphasize on Genentech, later uh, they really started to produce great results because of the answer I'm about to give, which is uh, under mm-hmm. a remarkable leader named uh, uh, Arthur Levinson. What happens is this, is that innovation uh, in any given industry has a threshold. You have to meet the threshold of innovation to be in the game. And in airlines, that innovation threshold is relatively low. And in, uh, and in biotech, that innovation threshold is very high. If you don't have a high level of, of uh, potentially patent-protected breakthrough products, you're not in the game at all, right? So it's a high threshold. 
But once you're above that threshold, more and more and more and more innovation doesn't make you great. Mm-hmm. But rather, it is the blend of creativity and discipline that really is what makes you great. It is the ability to marry discipline to creativity such that the discipline amplifies the creativity rather than destroying it. And uh, I think that that's the real secret. And here's what's really hard about this, I think. Um, I don't think creativity is the hard part. I mean, everybody thinks that Mm. creativity is the scarce resource. I I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that uh, being human is to be creative. It's our natural human state. It is what it means to be creative, uh, to be human, is to be creative. But most of us, while we may be naturally creative, we are not naturally disciplined. And that is why it's such a rare characteristic to blend the creativity and the discipline. And let me just close this out with the, the story that really kind of clinched this for, for us as we were analyzing it. We kept noticing in the history of Intel that while Intel is an enormously innovative company, at critical junctures, it wasn't always first, and it wasn't always the most innovative in the early stages of uh, uh, you know when they were selecting the microprocessor for the IBM PC or back with the early memory chips. They were innovative enough to be a contender, but they weren't always the most innovative. And we were scratching our head, but we went back to a critical point when Intel was a tiny company, and there was another company that had a, a better uh, DRAM chip out sooner before Intel's first really key 1K, and yet Intel won. Why? Because back then, even in those days, Intel was known not under the moniker Intel Innovates, but under the word Intel Delivers. And when customers needed to depend on who would have the chips, who would do them at affordable cost, who would have higher reliability. And later, if you're IBM, what's the one thing that you cannot have? You could not have a company that would fail to deliver when you have to come out with your IBM PC. So the critical thing for IBM was to have chips that were innovative enough but that ultimately it was the discipline that Intel delivers that was the marginal delta that allowed them to be great. There's a great little um, detail in the book about an Intel executive. I don't remember whether it was Andy Grove uh, who had something unexpected. I'm going to lead you to give you the punchline here, Jim. Had something unexpected on his desk. Remember this? Uh, the, hamburger, uh, the hamburger box. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah, he was. This is great because this is the early days of Intel, right? And uh, and and they're uh, they're they're basically saying we have to be have a high degree of standardization. We have to make chips like high tech jelly beans, is the way they used to describe it. And and we need to make our plants so that there's a high degree of replicability within them. You could drop into any plant, and it'd be like any other plant, so that the place could work. So somebody put a took a a McDonald's hamburger box and put it on Andy Grove's desk, but changed it to. McIntel, and that's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a great little it's a great little moment in the book. There's another thing another thing that you talk about, and, and we're gonna again we're talking to folks we're talking to Jim Collins, uh, who's the co-author with Morton Hansen of the new and very terrific book uh, Great by Choice. Uh, you'll be able to ask Jim questions eventually when I stop, uh, which will be eventually uh, by simply pressing start two on your phone. That will allow us to see that you're raising your hand, and we will call on you uh, eventually. Uh, to ask your question to to Jim, uh, one of the things you talk about with regard to Intel and its um, uh, its its really rather remarkable triumph over a, a very similarly situated competitor uh, is this principle that you talk about of zooming in and zooming out. Now you yep. tell a, a story that um, you, you mentioned in the book that it's 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 a story that's been told before. It was actually new to me. 
uh, about what uh, Andy Grove and, and who was the other fellow? Uh, was it Noyce? Gordon Moore, Andy Grove. one of the founders. Yep. Gordon Moore, right. Uh, Andy, uh, Andy Grove and Gordon Moore um, did when they were making a decision about what to do with DRAM. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah. Well, uh, first, um, the, the, the credit for unearthing this story goes to uh, actually a former professor of mine. I took his course in when I was in graduate school, one of the first times he ever taught, a remarkable, remarkable strategy thinker by the name of Robert Bergelman. And everybody out there should expose themselves to Robert Bergelman's uh, work and thinking. Uh, it should be more widely read. And he is the world's leading expert in really, really knowing Intel. Uh, mm. In fact, he co-taught a course uh, on strategy and technology with Andy Grove at Stanford Business School. Um, so uh, great light uh, uh, to shine a light on, on Robert and his great work. Um, he, in the process of his research on Intel, came across this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story that was buried in a case that he wrote, and it goes like this. They're sitting there in, in, in I think it was 1985. The, the, uh, the semiconductor industry has been, especially the DRAM market, has just been pounded by international competition. Nobody can make any money. It's just bleeding. It's misery. It's awful. Meanwhile, uh, starting a number of years earlier, Intel had begun firing bullets, as we describe in the book. You fire bullets, and then you fire cannonballs. been firing bullets on this emerging area of what was later to be the microprocessor, and it just began as a small step, and, they, and, they'd be in, and then they fired another bullet, and it was working, and they were firing bullets and getting some empirical validation that this microprocessor thing would actually work. So here they are with their core business, DRAMs just going into the tank, and the industry in a complete catastrophe. Meanwhile, they've got this other little flywheel growing up in, uh, in microprocessors, and so they're sitting there in trying to decide what to do, and I can't remember whether they were in Grove's office or Moore's office, but it goes like this. One of them turns to the other and says, well, what if we were fired and uh, we were replaced by new management? What would they do? And uh, the answer came back, well, clearly, we'd, they'd get out of memory chips and fed on microprocessors. Okay, so why don't we fire ourselves, go through a door, go out into the hallway, <laughs> rehire ourselves, come back through the revolving door, and do exactly that ourselves? So they said, okay, you're fired, you're fired. They walked out into the hallway, you're hired, you're hired. They came back in as new management and, and got out of, uh, my, uh, out of memory chips and into microprocessors. And, but here's the really key thing. Right at that moment was this, this uh, wonderful question that allowed them to zoom out. And let me just briefly talk about this. This is sure. an idea that has come to me, has been so useful to me in many ways. Uh, and I'll even talk about it in a personal way with, with rock climbing. Here's what happens. When you're under duress and you're facing uncertainty and you're not really sure what to do, most of us respond by zooming in on what's right in front of us and gripping harder, right? Rather than stepping back and zooming way out to, to take in a, a sort of a larger picture of the situation before we zoom back in. Now, in rock climbing, we have this thing called the on-site climb. And the on-site climb is you, you, you start up a climb that may be hard for you, and you get one shot to do it on-site. The moment you've climbed on it, it's that your on-site is it, right? You, if, you ever, if you fall off and you have to come back to the climb again, it's no longer your on-site. The power and the challenge of on-sites is there's a high degree of uncertainty. You don't know what the holds are going to be like. You might have looked at them from the ground, uh, but you, uh, you're going to get in the middle of the pitch. Your forearms are going to be engorged uh, with uh, lactic acid. Your hands are going to unwrap. Your heart rate's going to be up. Your anxiety is going to be there, both because of the uncertainty and also because at some point it's like, wow, Chef, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to make the next clip and how long of a fall am I going to take. And all this stuff is running through your mind while, while your whole system is heightened and you're trying to make good decisions okay 
And what happens at that moment, firefighters call this getting tunnel vision. Um, I mean, mm. uh, uh, jet fighter pilots have this problem, right? What happens is you, all of a sudden you reach up, bam, you grab the next hold, and it's not as good as you expected. So, you, boom, you hit the next one. It's even worse. And so what you do is at that moment you start over-gripping the hold, and you're focused, I'm going to grip really hard on this hold. When, in fact, at that very moment, you're zooming in to over-grip. Let's grip on memory chips, grip on memory chips, grip on memory chips. And instead, what you need to do at that moment is to go, I need to zoom out. What am I missing here? Mm -hmm. And if at that Mm -hmm. moment Mm -hmm. you zoom out, you look and you say, gosh, there's a big foothold up to my right. If I can just get my foot on that, boom, I'm going to be able to get up to that crack. I, personally, under the duress of the on-site, tend to tunnel vision and zoom in. I would focus mm-hmm. and grip on the memory chips, grip, grip, grip on the memory chips. When, in fact, what you have to do is have the presence of mind to zoom out. It's like all of a sudden being a cameraman behind you watching yourself and then to kind of take a bigger scope and then to come back in and deal with the situation. And so when we climb, we've actually taken this idea and use it. Uh, and so my, my, my dear climbing partner, Jim Logan, when he sees me struggling on an onsite, will literally yell at me from the other end of the rope, zoom out. Right? Oh, nice. yeah, I've got to zoom out, and then I'll see the, uh, the hold that's obvious if I only look. That's what they were doing. Instead of over-gripping memory chips, which would be zooming in, they zoomed out and then zoomed in. That's ex- one of the critical skills that we found for dealing with a world of uncertainty. Uncertainty, psychologically, we want to zoom in. It, it's against sure. our very nature. Because I think, it's, have I, think it's some le- yeah. I think at some level what a lot of the leaders that you're writing about um, – did thing a lot of times what we try to do just I think as an instinct since we don't like uncertainty we don't like ambiguity is yep. we try to suppress mitigate um, uh, starve that uncertainty yep. um, but that's not always the, that's not always the solution uh, the solution is that zooming out there's even some interesting research in uh, I mean I'm spacing out who did it that shows that we are more creative when we solve other people's problems than we when we solve our own and at some level okay. that's what yep. zooming out is. Zooming out exactly. and saying, wait a second, what if this were somebody else? Or let me look at this as if it's a movie. Um, and I think it's, a really, it's, you know, I think it's really effective. Um, there's also a level of, um, of I got to, we've got a lot of questions coming in on Twitter. I want to get other voices in here in a moment. But there's also, I think, a level in what you're talking about of a kind of uh, 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 the world belonging to people who can toggle back and forth. Yes. Uh, creativity and discipline, toggling back and forth, zooming in and zooming out. There's a really interesting um, idea, I think it's not as explicit as those two, of, the, of toggling between humility and confidence. Yep. Um, and, and, um, uh, and so it's almost this kind of, um, uh, what do you call it when people are, uh, ambidextrousness that yep. you're describing in a, lot of these, in a lot of these cases. We've got a lot of questions coming in on Twitter. Let me give you a couple of them. And remember, if you want to ask a question, we have people lined up on the phone, but just to remind you, uh, to ask a question of Jim Collins, uh, who with Morton Hansen is the author of Great by Choice, just press star two on your phone. Star two on your phone. That will see us. That will see you raising your hand. And all of you who've been on star two for half an hour, we see you. We love you. We see you. Thanks for sticking with us. We'll get to you eventually. Um, and if you're listening to this on on iTunes, please do not press star two because nothing will happen. Um, so on on, uh, on on Twitter, we got a couple of questions. Uh, one question that's come up from a, number, a couple of people is um, is Apple. Um, how does um, how do these ideas apply? It was interesting for folks who haven't read the book is that Apple is in this case a case of 
a company that underperformed. It was a, not a 10 xer It was the, uh, the, the company that made the existence of the 10 xer which in this case was Microsoft, possible. Remember, this, the study period ended in 2002. Um, but people wanted, a lot of people wanted to know, how does what you're talking about, particularly discipline and innovation, how does it explain uh, Apple's recent success? Well, what's really interesting about the Apple case uh, is its shift. And uh, what you have in the case of Apple is a, is a company that had a great start, uh, but then really languished. Uh, and in fact, if I recall correctly, uh, when we ran the numbers, if you would have invested in Apple when it was a uh, when it went public and held it until the late 90s, uh, your uh, returns would have actually not kept pace with an index fund. And uh, and and so you know here's a company that had great promise but really didn't deliver as much on that promise over that extended period of time. And then what's really very interesting, of course, is that in the 2000s, uh, after being really in a near-death experience in the, in the late 90s, uh, this company uh, comes back and uh, turns itself into uh, the the, mo- the largest market capitalization company in the world. And so there's actually, in a way, Apple is a double comparison because it's a comparison mm-hmm. uh, to Microsoft during the 80s and 90s, but it's a comparison to itself of the of the 2000s to the 90s and 80s, right? And so you ask, okay. So, well, maybe the answer to that is just Steve Jobs, and of course, clearly, that's a big part of the answer. But the really interesting thing is uh, we write about this at the end of Chapter 4, and uh, where what Steve Jobs does when he first comes back uh, is he doesn't first do a whole bunch of big innovations. He, in fact, returns the company to increased discipline. Uh, he gets the balance sheet in order. Yeah, 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 uh, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, he deals with the cost structure. right? He brings in people like Tim Cook and really works on things like supply chain and systems and, and things like that. And then what does he turn to? The Macintosh. He doesn't basically say, let's go out and launch big new cannonballs. He says, we have a great thing. The big thing we've had for a long time is the Macintosh. We must shore that up. And then later, what we find is that it's really the blend of discipline and creativity that uh, that made Apple really get back on track. And we we write in the book about this idea of called fire bullets then fire cannonballs, which is really the alternative to just saying you know go forth and innovate. What, is, what does that mean? What would you do on Monday? But on Monday you could say what bullets should we fire? Have they hit anything? Which ones might be converted into a cannonball? Which are where you really concentrate your resources? When you when you deconstruct the history of the iPod. What you find is the idea started outside of Apple's walls. They weren't the first to come up with an MP3. Uh, They fired bullets on it. They were trying to solve their own problems. Uh, They did it initially and described it as a natural extension of our digital hub strategy. Right? That's not exactly heralding the great next thing. It was a small step. It was a Mm -hmm. series of bullets and, and, and evolving it for the Macintosh and doing the file sharing software. Boom, boom, boom. Bullet, 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 bullet. Finally, after a whole series of steps, which I don't need to repeat here, they realized this was a calibrated uh, idea now. Now they could go big, and they concentrated the gunpowder in a cannonball, and they fired, went big, iTunes uh, for the uh, for Windows, multiplying the size of the market, and bang, we had one of these great successes. So what we found is that when Apple came back, uh, it was not just creativity, but it was really this discipline and creativity and the fire bullets then cannonballs approach uh, that correlated very highly with how it came back. Right. We've got another question here, and then we'll go, we'll go to the phones. I know I keep saying we're going to go to the phones. We are, but we've got some great questions coming in on Twitter. Uh, this is from Laura in Birmingham who says, 
Uh, how do you convince a, a growth-oriented and earnings-per-share-focused board of directors that a 20-mile march is best? There are obviously in public companies enormous, ferocious short-term pressures. And you're saying, you know, it's a 20-mile march. How do, you, how do you reckon that? Or how do you make the case internally for that? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful question, and I think it's a question to take very seriously. The, so let's begin first with pointing out that in our studies, we're always looking at those that beat uh, the market, and in this case, their industry, by a huge amount, 10x their industry, uh, and of course, uh, substantially outperforming the market uh, in contrast to those that did not. Key point, both the ones that did it and the ones that didn't were publicly traded companies, and they were facing the same short-term pressures. And true, yet, true. one set of companies made different choices in the face of those short-term pressures. And my, uh, my response to a board of directors, without being flip, would be to put down, say, the chart of Stryker uh, and, and versus its comparison and say, Stryker, $350 to $1 invested. The other company didn't beat the market and uh, eventually disappeared. Which curve do we want to be? Would we rather be the one that wins 28 uh, to 1 better than the market or the one that's only 1x the market? If we want to be the one that's 28x the market, we need a 20-mile march. So I'd sort of flip it around and go right into the standpoint of saying, as a board, our responsibility is to build shareholder value, not share price. Let me repeat that. Our goal is to build value. Anything that you look at in less than a five-year period is confusing price and value. Mm-hmm. Value begins at five years plus. I prefer 15, but I'll settle for five. And if you basically are just worried about the short-term stock price, then you are not fulfilling the responsibility of building long-term value, which is really what the board should worry about. Right. And that also reminds me a little bit of another great quote here and, uh, where you say, which I think is quite, quite interesting, is that uh, with regard to change, uh, it's not as if these companies were resistant to change per se, but what you say here, and I think it, it really connects to your late, last response, is that you found in your studies that the signature, this is, these are your words now, or yours and Hanson's words, the signature of mediocrity is not an unwillingness to change. The signature of mediocrity is chronic inconsistency. And, and I do think that that short-term focus leads to chronic inconsistency, leads to lurching uh, from this thing to, the, to the, this shiny object to that shiny object. Um, and there is something about that. I mean, it's so interesting because, the, the, and I, I'll call them values. They're practices, but they're also values. The values of consistency uh, and, and discipline um, are so prominent here, and, and they make a really nice accompaniment to the things that I think more often get celebrated, which is innovation, risk-taking, speed, and so forth. We're going to go to the phones now, folks, finally. Again, if you have a question for Jim, it's star two on your phone. Uh, let's talk to uh, Lee. Uh, Watkins in uh, in Keller, Texas. Lee, you're on the air. Hey, Dan, this is Bob. Uh, the phone's just listed under Lee. Oh, okay, Bob. Bob Lee. Well, if you're in Texas, your name might be Bobby Lee, but we'll call you Bobby Lee for this one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I, I think that you've covered a lot of what I was going to ask, but the uh, I think that it's been a business mantra the past few years uh, to ready, fire, aim, as if you should do the innovation and then clean up the mess later. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's 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 good to see the the argument that you really do need the discipline uh, and the consistency. Um, and so what what I'm taking from this is that um, you're 
when you're ready, fire, aim, you're not firing with an automatic weapon spraying bullets everywhere. Um, you're being more targeted and then sending the one bullet or, or two at a time to see how they do and then putting your resources behind the ones that work. So um, that's all I had. Uh, Jim, any thoughts on that? He's he, uh, Bob is absolutely right, and in fact, again, the beauty of this kind of analysis is we see what actually works. When, when you're talking about scarce resources, firing those uncalibrated cannonballs, which is the fire before you aim as opposed to first fire bullets to get a line of sight and then fire cannonballs, uh, tends to correlate more with bad outcomes. And as the world is increasingly uncertain and scary, yeah, 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 then the more important it is to fire the bullets before you fire the cannonballs. Right, right, right. But again, it's not, I mean, there is, I mean, there, I, I do like the ready, fire, aim because it shows a willingness to try things. That you, it does shows a willingness to experiment. What you're suggesting is a kind of a more disciplined form of experimentation, which is, you know, which is it, which, uh, this uh, idea of firing bullets before uh, cannonballs. Uh, there's a, a writer named Peter Sims who wrote a really nice book called Little Bets. There, you know, make some little bets before yeah. you make the big bet. In, in um, fact, uh, Dan, Dan, can I just yeah. uh, just comment on something you just said that just triggered in my in my mind because I hadn't thought about this ready, fire, aim uh, 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 mantra in the context of this. It is ready, fire, aim with bullets. It's not yes. ready, fire, aim with cannonballs. That's exactly. the critical thing is that yeah. you want to fire bullets that you don't know if they're going to hit. That's the point of bullets. You just want to make sure you don't ready, fire, aim cannonballs. Uh, right, especially in conditions of, especially in conditions of um, of uncertainty, which are um, going to remain, which are, which are essentially the baseline conditions of our of our lives forever. Yep. Um, uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Lincoln, Nebraska, um, home of uh, the University of Nebraska, which until this weekend was ranked number nine, but lost at the hands of Northwestern University. Uh, uh, Todd, uh, sorry about that. Uh, those Cornhusker lost to my beloved Northwestern Wildcats. What's your question? Or would you just like me to continue gloating? Well, that's okay because I'm a transplanted Georgia dog, so <laughs> oh, okay. a nice win. So that's okay. <laughs> but uh, thanks, Jim. My question is really on the social sector. I'm yep. a nonprofit fundraising uh, person. Um, given the economy. And the emphasis on money as an input has really increased. Um, how to, what are your thoughts on how nonprofits, especially internal leadership, handle that pressure that's, uh, that's just always there, and it's more now than ever, of, of increasing that input but not really focusing necessarily on output as a measure of greatness? Uh, Todd, it's a really, uh, really nice and very relevant question. And uh, one of the things that we learned in uh, in this study uh, is that we write about this idea of productive paranoia, and uh, the idea being that, uh, I mean, the, the truth is that you you only accomplish great things over time if you survive. And uh, as a result, our, our companies carried a higher level of cash-to-assets ratios than average by a 3 to 10x uh, factor, even when they were small. Uh, they were always squirreling away resources and buffers to be able to deal uh, with uncertainty so that they could get through whatever storms that happened to hit them. And, uh, and what that would say to me is that uh, it's really an and, that in the short term, uh, we may actually have to replenish our supplies, uh, and that if we, because, precisely because we 
have to stay alive in the storm. And, and that that isn't confusing inputs and outputs necessarily so long as we understand uh, that the critical thing, the reason we're doing the assembling the resources is to give ourselves the, the supplies, the oxygen canisters, the buffers, uh, to be able to continue to focus on the real output. But don't confuse carrying oxygen canisters on Everest with getting to the top of Everest. The goal is still to get to the top of Everest, but we may need more oxygen canisters, and for a period of time, we might have to postpone our climb for a couple of days while we replenish our supplies. Well, that's, that's a great visual. Thanks. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Todd, for the for the call. Let's go to where we got you guys. Oh, we got John in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. John, uh, welcome to Office Hours with Jim Pro with uh, Jim Collins. Great to be with you. A question about uh, product launches in a very crowded environment. How do you get a great, not just a good launch possibility going? <laughs> oh, that's a uh, that's a really nice question. And so, I, I, let me um, uh, let me just zoom out for a moment myself and think about what does <laughs> our research have to say about that question specifically with if we can see any differences between uh, successful product launches versus less successful. I'll, I'll point to one thing that's actually very been very interesting for us to observe. Uh, we found that the companies that did best over time uh, tended to have their launches be even more successful than they had promised, meaning they tended to not overhype their uh, their products uh, and how well they would do. They tended to actually underhype them, and they said, "Look, which would we rather face? Would we rather face people being angry at us because we didn't tell them how great it was going to be, and then it was bigger than everybody expected, or would we rather have people angry at us because we sort of overpromised and oversold and overhyped, and then it fell short of uh, of expectations?" We found a very noted uh, approach of trying to understate and then have things turn into, wow, it's even better than we expected. It's even <clears> more successful as a way to be able to manage uh, the, 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 the perceptions and also the risks that come with launches. There's a great tendency to oversell and to overhype in our world. We learned that our companies say we think that's dangerous. We would much rather under-promise and over-succeed. Uh, right, and the other thing is that, I mean, I guess as I would in interpret some of that, it goes back to this idea that innovation alone isn't enough. That is, in your launch, you know, the product, a product launch is as much about the launch as it is about the product. And if you don't have the supply chain, if you don't have the rigorous processes, if you don't have the discipline, then you're undermining your efforts to launch that, that product. I, I think what was interesting, there was a great line that I, one of the, the, the companies you wrote about said, and I'm trying to remember what it was, it was such a great line, I can't remember. They, it, it, it was, um, um, it was, uh, oh yeah, we're one fad behind. We're yeah, one Stryker. fad behind. Yeah, Stryker talked about we're one fad behind. And so, uh, there is, I've always, there's this old adage, uh, the, the, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouth gets the cheese um, and, there, <laughs> and there is a there is something there is something to that in some of these in some of these stories it wasn't the first one out of the box it was the one who figured out how to make it work better and deliver it more efficiently uh, let's go to another um, I've got a Twitter question here um, from uh, from Chris he says uh, what are Jim's thoughts 
on being judicious with selecting which small bets to stick with, that is, which bullets to pursue to cannonball, and which ones to say, you know what, it's a bullet, it didn't work that well, how to get out of it. How do you make that decision? What do you look to for guidance on that? Uh, that that's a really uh, nice question that we wrestle with even within our uh, operation because w- I think one of the really challenging questions with bullets and cannonballs is uh, when do you have too many bullets out there that it essentially creates the idea of a cannonball? So mm-hmm. let me just kind of briefly e- explain what the bullets and cannonballs is about. It's ultimately sure. about empirical validation. Uh, what we learned is that uh, that if you look at our folks, we write about this idea that they, we said earlier they're not more creative, but but they are more empirical and they have creativity that is always rooted in empiricism. And the point of firing a bullet is to gain empirical validation as to whether something is showing promise and might work versus uh, empirical validation that it is not going to work. And it's all ultimately about empirical validation. Wow, that's actually showing some success. We can see clicks on the flywheel. Uh, It actually worked or it didn't work, and we can understand why. We tried this, and and we learned something from it. The data is coming in. And uh, a bullet has to meet three tests. It has to be uh, low cost, low risk, and low distraction. Okay? Anything that fails those three tests, if it starts not being low cost or low risk or low distraction, and it has to be all three, it's now starting to morph into a cannonball. So here's the guidance that I would give on this. The first is to be able to say uh, it's fine to keep firing bullets so long as they remain in those three tests. It's low cost, low risk, low distraction. As soon as it starts going into an 8088 shell or into something that's bigger and it's starting to become not low cost, not low risk, and not low distraction, then you have to stop and ask the question, wait a minute, um, is this got enough empirical validation to make it bigger, or should we basically say the empirical validation is it's not going to work, let's put our gunpowder elsewhere. And everything that we're – basically there are two kinds of gunpowder to always worry about. One is cash, and the other is time and distraction. And uh, the moment that you start consuming a lot of gunpowder with a bullet that you fired, then you just have a very rigorous decision. Does it merit continuing or does it not merit continuing? And if it doesn't merit continuing, be ruthless. Terminate it. Yeah, yeah. There is – I want to get to that. There is a a word that comes up a lot. I want to talk about another word that comes up, but there is a word you talk about, kind of relentless, ruthless, that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. But not, not not in the sense of being cruel but in the sense of looking at the evidence and taking the evidence seriously and making decisions based on that. There's another word. I want to focus on this a little bit. You talk about uh, productive. Let's talk about paranoia first. Anytime you have a conversation with someone, you should talk about paranoia. Um, Paranoia ends up being a pretty prominent feature of these 10Xs. What's going on there? Well, I want to emphasize that it's productive paranoia, right? It's, it's channeling uh, the productive paranoia, which is uh, channeling the uh, your anxiety and your fear into very clear-headed action and extensive preparation for all the bad things that are likely to happen. Uh, what we found about separated these 10Xers was that they had this fanatic discipline, this empirical creativity, and we've talked a lot about that with bullets and cannonballs, and they had productive paranoia. And, and, and you know, here's what's going on. Um, let me actually just share a story that's in the book because uh, this is the one that I think really yeah. illustrates what we mean by productive paranoia. 
Anybody who is familiar with the 96 Everest tragedy and who read uh, Into Thin Air, which is a book I warmly recommend, John Krakauer's master writer, uh, should also read David Brashear's book, High Exposure, mm. because uh, here's what we have is we have two teams of, ma- of climbers on the mountain on the same day in March, uh, I'm mean, sorry, May of 1996. And David had the burden of trying to get an IMAX camera to the top of Everest and get the first ever IMAX film, which he succeeded at. Now, David comes out of his tent uh, on, the, on the day that uh, he was going to go to the summit, and they hadn't slept well that night. There was wind, and it was colder than they expected, and he looks down a few thousand feet below him, and he sees the other teams uh, heading up the mountain on that particular day, and David immediately does what we talked about earlier. He zooms out, and he starts asking what any productive paranoid does, which is to start asking, what if? What if uh, there's a uh, that's presages a storm? What if there's a storm and there's a bottleneck at the Hillary Step? What if even if we get good weather, it, and there's all these other people swarming around the summit and ruining our summit shot? Uh, what if that uh, there's too many people on the ropes and one of them breaks? Uh, what if? What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? And he takes a look, and he says, "There's too many what ifs here." We're not going to go up today. We're going to go down. So here we have two sets of teams on the mountain on the same day. One set of team goes up. The other team goes down. That's David's team. Now, years later, I asked David the question. Uh, we write about this in, in, in the book. Why were you able – why did you go down when the other teams went up? And his, his answer was because I could. Well, what do you mean you could? They brought enough oxygen canisters and supplies yeah. in time for one summit bid, which means that if they if, – if, on that day, once they went, they were in sort of a we either succeed or fail today, which put them – limited their options. They only had one bullet in their chamber. He said, I brought enough oxygen canisters and extra permit time and supplies for multiple summit bids. That was a decision I made in Boston, not on the mountain. And what productive paranoids do – is they're always, even when they're sitting and planning for the expedition in Boston, they're always saying, what if, and what are my contingencies, and what other options do I have? Uh, he has a binder that's full of tabs, not of just the plans, but of all the things that can go wrong, so that he has the contingencies. That's what productive paranoids do, so that when that moment comes on the mountain, he has the option to go down and come back another day. And in David's case, not only did he have the option to go down, he heroically gave up some of yeah. his cache of oxygen canisters to help save other climbers. And then still, two weeks later, was able to get his IMAX film. The point of that is that if, you're, if it's just being paranoid, you'd never leave the ground. If it's not being paranoid, you can either get killed or leave yourself in a very exposed position. But when you're a productive paranoid and you're translating into decisions you make long before you're on the mountain. And on the mountain, you zoom out and you ask, what if, what if, what if? You both succeed and survive. Productive paranoia. Let me ask you another, let me, let me ask another question related to this. We only have a few minutes left, so I wanna, I'm actually going to use those uh, from, for myself to pursue a couple of other really intriguing lines here. I want to talk about this. There's a word or a, a version of a word, Jim, that you use in this book 34 times. It's not a word you often hear in everyday conversation. It's not a word that you often hear in, see in, in nonfiction books. Uh, but it's a word that, according to uh, my ebook, that you use in this, in this work 34 times in its form and derivations. And that word is fanatical. Uh, fanatical. Um, do you have to be fanatical to do this? You have to, do you have to be fanatical to be a, a 10Xer? Um, to be a 10Xer, 
I believe the evidence is yes. Uh, to maybe be a 2Xer, maybe not. Uh, and, uh, and so I guess where, where I look at this is you know, we are looking at extreme success. We're looking at folks that started with three aircraft and beat the market 63 times. We're looking at folks right. that started with three people in a tilt-up building and ended up building uh, the, the greatest semiconductor uh, company in history. We're, starting, you know, we're looking at people who started with, uh, with, with no product but just some technology that created uh, the most successful biotechnology company in history. I mean, we're talking about folks who went from nothing to incredible, incredible heights. And uh, the people who do this they, they are. 10x is the lowest level of success. Some of them are, are, are 50x sure. or 60x yeah. or, or 30x. Right? People do not do that if they are not obsessed, monomaniacal, fanatic, driven, extreme people who tend to produce extreme results. Uh, I'm not advocating that as good or bad. I think that's just an objective reality. Now, the flip side of that is that what they do in extreme extreme fanatic discipline, extreme empirical creativity, extreme productive paranoia. I mean, look, if you're going to put an IMAX camera on the top of Everest, if you're going to go to the South Pole in 1911, if you're going to start a biotech company and make it the most successful in an industry full of carnage, you've got to be these things in order to go to that level. But maybe you just want to climb Long's Peak. So maybe you want to. Uh, uh, maybe you want to have. You don't necessarily need to be 63 times your industry or 10 times your industry, uh, and and you can still take the learnings, the 20 mile march, and the fire bullets and cannonballs, and the oxygen canisters, and the zoom out, zoom in of, of the productive paranoia, and the idea of return on luck, and all the things that we write about, and you can say, I may not ever be a 10x, but I can be a better x. Mm-hmm. And by being by applying these, I can definitely increase our chances of survival, and I can increase our chances of being more successful. Uh, we learn what those are by looking at extremes, but that's very different than advocating that everybody needs to be extreme. Right. It's not all right. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But there is there is a level of fanaticism here. But I'm wondering yeah. whether that fanaticism comes, which we think of fanaticism as a something on the order of a, of a dysfunction. But where, where does the fanaticism come from? I, I think it's, it's, it's rooted in, in something else. And you say that a key question that, that people need to ask themselves, and I think it's a question not only business leaders, but the folks on the line who are individual contributors, the folks on the line who are working for themselves is, it's a great question, which is, what are you in it for? Yep. What are you in it for? Tell us about that. You know, it's interesting, Dan. Um, this is a, this is a great sort of theme for us to explore towards the end of our time together because I've had the great privilege to be associated now for almost 25 years with uh, these major research projects studying what separates great enterprises from good ones, uh, starting all the way back uh, in the late 80s when we began the Built to Last project with Jerry Porras, uh, the Good to Great Research project, uh, the How the Mighty Fall, which was our turn to the dark side in studying train wrecks, and then uh, and now <laughs> Great by Choice with Morton. And uh, over the course of that, we have uh, over 6,000 years of combined corporate history in our research database. And and I you know am sort of reaching a point um, – because I think this will may well be the last of this type of book that I do, of this kind of big match pair business study. I think I'm going to turn to other questions. Uh, I find myself zooming out from all of it and saying, like, what are the really, really, really big, big, big meta lessons? Uh, not just, not just the specifics of any given study. And I come away 
uh, with uh, a couple of things that really have uh, affected uh, just sort of my overall worldview. One of them is the idea that uh, our research co- can basically look at it is that your environment determines what you are. Your your breaks determine what you are. Uh, you know, sort of what happens to you is the big variable, or mm-hmm. it's more a matter of what you choose to do and how well you do it. Our research very clearly comes down on the side that it's actually much more about what you do and how well you do it in the context of your environment, but your environment doesn't determine your outcomes ultimately. Uh, uh, that notion that greatness is a function of choice and discipline is meta lesson number one. But there's a second one that has had a real impact on me. I think the people who do this are truly driven uh, from deep, deep inside themselves for something that is bigger and more enduring than themselves. Mm. Uh, and in that sense, I think it is almost artistic. Uh, not autistic, artistic. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, when, you know, they're, they're sure, there can be ego involved and pride involved, but you know, when Beethoven is composing a great symphony, at some point he, he's trying to create something that is as beautiful and as lasting and as great as it can be. When somebody is painting a great piece of art or creating a great uh, architectural structure or a sculpture, uh, uh, they're they're trying to create something that might outlive them, that might outlast them, that might be bigger and more meaningful than them. And I think the people who build these companies this way are driven by a very similar urge. And that when it comes right down to it, uh, if it was just about making money, there's a lot easier ways to do that. If it was just about having a reputation, there are a lot easier ways to do that. They are out to, in the end, I believe they are ambitious, even if they're extreme, even if they're paranoid, if they're any of these things. But they are channeling all their energy and drive and intensity outward. 